Welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. In this episode, we talk about the Kingdom of Goguryeo. The music you just heard was from the indie rock band from Korea, Lee Nalchi, with their hit song, Bum Nero Onda, or The Tiger is Coming. They're a very, very interesting fusion of pansori, which is a traditional Korean folk music, mixed with, as you can tell, a lot of modern influences. Definitely check them out on YouTube and you know all the other social platforms when you can. They're my favorite band of the moment. Our last episode, we followed the history of Gojoseon, the first Korean state, from its birth in 300 BCE to its fall to the Chinese Han Dynasty in 108 BCE. We then followed that storyline until the Koreans finally and permanently expel Han China rule from the peninsula in 313 CE. That independence was partially won by peoples from the kingdom of Goguryeo. So let's first compare Gojoseon with Goguryeo. They are the two most prominent kingdoms from early Korean history, the former because it was the first to enter the record books as a state, and the latter because it was the largest and most powerful. From what I've researched, I would put the difference between Gojoseon and Goguryeo this way. You may recall from my previous episode on Gojoseon about its origins. Named by the Chinese as Chaoshan, or Morning Calm, and first entering the record books in 3rd century BCE, Gojoseon was a vague area of land east of the Yan Kingdom, at least from the perspective of the Chinese. When Han China attacked in 108 BCE near the Amnok River, it in essence ended the reign of Gojoseon. Meanwhile, around the same time, give or take 100 or 200 years, you had tribal people living within proximity and also likely among the Gojoseon people. While Gojoseon was centered around the Amnok River, these tribal people were centered farther northwest along the Han River, near present-day Shenyang, China, in the Liaoning Peninsula. Gojoseon may, might have been more agricultural. That kingdom expanded into parts of present-day South Korea, which definitely had agricultural land. Goguryeo, on the other hand, was founded by some very hard scrabble mountain people. Near the Han River, they were cramped into the mountains which did not have enough arable land to sustain them. Thus, they were hunters, horse traders, and ultimately raiders, becoming a terror to the agricultural neighbors at the foot of the mountains which they called home. However, Goguryeo didn't just span the mountains along the Han River. Their influence spanned across a mountain range along the spine of North Korea to the northeastern coast of uh, Korea to basically subjugate the Okja people, which we will be talking about a lot in this episode and in the future as well. While Gojoseon was under attack by the Han Chinese in the 1st century BCE or the second century BC, early 2nd century BCE, the Goguryeans were just getting started as a more organized group. From a geopolitical context, the biggest difference might be this. Gojoseon succumbed to the Han Chinese, thereby giving up their territory to Chinese rule via the Han commanderies. Goguryeo, on the other hand, attacked the Han Chinese, including their commanderies, and thus eventually took that land back for the indigenous people. Gojoseon lasted maybe 300-400 years, at least officially, uh, since they were basically subjugated by the Chinese Han in 108 BCE, while as Goguryeo lasted at least 700 years. So let's talk about where the Goguryeans came from. To talk about Goguryeo, we need to talk about the ethnic tribe that made up a large part of that state, 
the Yemek. The Yemek themselves are known to be a, a combination of two tribes, the Ye and the Mek. In a prior episode, I, recount, I recounted the founding myth of Korea, Dangun, in which a tiger and a bear enter a cave, and the tiger emerges as a, wythem, uh, as a woman after eating garlic and mugwort. The exact origin of this myth is unknown, as the earliest written record of it is from the 13th century, but there is wide consensus that the Ye, the Ye people worshipped tigers, while the Mech people were named after bears. Thus, there is a strong indication that the Dangun myth may trace as far back as the Yemek. Yemek are known to have occupied the wide expanse of land in northeastern Asia, with roughly the North Korea-China border as its longitudinal midpoint. Their land spanned north into Manchuria and southward into the heart of present-day Korea. The Ye tribe are said to have originated in the Buya region in Manchuria, and we'll be talking a, a bit about Buya in the future as well. Buya was another uh, large state that existed right above Goguryeo at the time and predated Goguryeo as well. We learned that prehistoric Koreans are believed to have originated somewhere north in Amur River Valley, and therefore the speculation is that the Yemek were from there as well. From what we know, while Gojoseon had become a full-fledged state in the northwest part of Korea and Liaoning, the Yemek people had consolidated within the eastern seaboard of North Korea, northern Korea, into Heilongjiang province of China. When you look at the three Chinese characters used for Goguryeo, the first one is Go, meaning large or high, and the latter two elements are a phonetic compound, meaning village or wall town, Guryeo. Together, they may they mean large village or large fortress. In the 10th century, Goryeo uh, would adopt that name as their own, except they would shorten it to just the two characters, Goryeo. From that, you get the origin for the modern-day word, Korea. Um, so they went from Goguryeo go to Goryeo, so they, were, they took out the middle syllable. The sound of these characters should not be confused with Gojoseon. The Go in Joseon was added by modern historians after the fact to distinguish it from the 13th century Joseon dynasty, which of course named itself after the original. And while the go in uh, Goguryeo means, uh, I'm sorry, while the Go in Gojoseon means old, the Go in Goguryeo means high or large. So they sound the same, but they actually have different uh, Chinese characters. How do we distinguish these two kingdoms? Gojoseon was formed around 500 to 300 BCE, depending on which historian you believe, and ended in 108 BCE, while Goguryeo formed around 37 BCE, a little after Gojoseon ended. To be clear, one kingdom did not spring from the other. They were separate kingdoms, but had overlapping geographies, and so we can speculate as to the ethnicities of both. Goguryeo's early days are much better documented in the histories, partially because, you know, they really started two to three hundred years after Gojoseon, and there is better evidence of it as well. There is a lot of material evidence that Goguryeo's heart was centered around the river valley between the Amnok and Hun rivers, which is just north of the Korean North Korea border. Goguryeo's first capital was at Jolbon, around 50 to 100 kilometers north of the present border, and in 3 CE it was moved to Gungne in present-day Jian, or Jilin, China, which itself is literally right on the border of the Amnok. 
And in 427, the capital moved to Pyongyang Fortress, which, as you can guess, is where the modern-day Pyongyang uh, city exists. Goguryeo sites have been found as far north as the Songhua River, parallel to Harbin, China, and as far south as Gyeongsangbuk-do in Korea, and as far west as the Laodong region. Broadly speaking, Goguryeo was a bit more northeast than Gojoseon based on these data points. One really cool aspect of Goguryeo capital cities in particular, um, and really a hint as to how tough times were back in the day, is that all Goguryeo capital cities had at least two fortresses. One was built on level ground, and that was used for everyday use. So during the normal course of the year, as farmers are going in and out of the fields and as people are trading in the markets and so forth, they were living in um, kind of a less fortified fortress in an easier location, probably with better access to water and, and roads and stuff like that. But there was another fortress that they built in a nearby mountain, and usually that was very, very heavily fortified. So, um, and obviously in in when they were being attacked, they would all flee um, and ensconce themselves in this mountain fortress. And um, in fact, the Goguryeo history is just full of incidents in which they've been able to success, in which they successfully defend themselves in these mountain fortresses from oncoming enemies. Um, you know, principally the Chinese, but also a lot of the rival tribes and also the steppe nomads as well. Some of these mountainside fortresses are quite breathtaking. If you want to see an example, take a look at Gungne in Jian, uh, China. It's a large stone fortress built on a towering cliff above the surrounding dense forest tree line, and the scale reminds me of uh, Jaipur's Amr Fort in Rajasthan. I have a picture on the website uh, for this episode if you want to take a look at it. So before moving on to the actual history of Goguryeo, we should talk about the political context and background. And obviously, with, as with anything regarding Korean history, there is some um, a very strong political element to it. Basically, there are three distinct viewpoints over the provenance of Goguryeo, and I'll discuss each one in turn. The first one, set forth by North Korea, can be easily summarized as it is over, over, overtly politicized, it can also easily be dismissed as well. One of their origin stories, one of North Korea's origin stories, is that the whole of human civilization originated via the Taedong River culture, which is you know somewhere in North Korea, and that Pyongyang, which is their capital city, is the center of it all. So obviously, <laughs> um, you know, pretty big conjecture there. It's not worth getting too much into, but one example of how this theory conflicts with material evidence involves the location of uh, King Dongmyeong, who is the first uh, ruler of Goguryeo and whose origin story we will cover um, in detail in a, in, uh, later in this episode. Although the North Koreans acknowledged that before Pyongyang, the capital of Goguryeo was actually in Jiang, China, um, their attempt to restore the, to the tomb of King Dongmyeong who is still in Jian, his remains are probably still in Jian somewhere, um, has led them to try to locate the tomb in Pyongyang. So apparently there's a bunch of archaeologists um, sometime in recent history running around Pyongyang trying to find uh, the remains of the king. The second viewpoint is that of China, which claims Goguryeo was established by one of the minority nationalities of China's northern regions. Specifically, they claim that Goguryeo was a polity of the Gao Yi uh, tribe, or Go Ijok in Korean, 
one of the ancient minorities who were administered under, uh, administered under the Shuantu commandery. You remember the Shuantu commandery was first located in the northeastern uh, coast of Korea, um, administering directly over the, the Okja people there. Um, the Okja people who occupied that area were, um, as we'll discuss later, were subjugated by the uh, Gogurians, who or the Yemek tribe, as what as they called themselves back then, um, who didn't really live near there, but they would, I guess, they would, you know, ride over the mountain range to come and collect their tribute from these these poor farmers. So the Chinese assertion is that Goguryeo was established as a state in 37 BCE when Jumong, or King Dongmyong, which we just mentioned, came south from Buya and absorbed the existing cultures there. They merged Jalbon and Buya as one ethnicity. Their claim is built on the historical records stating that Jumong, the founding king of Goguryeo, came south from Buya. And material evidence they use to corroborate this claim includes the discovery of Han Chinese coins as well as the similarity of gold earrings found in tombs in Buya and Jolbon. The third viewpoint is that put forward by South Korea. Their prevailing theories on the origins of Goguryeo continue to evolve along with new archaeological discoveries. For example, in 1970, historians argued that the tombs found in Goguryeo were similar to those found in Gangshang in China and Laoshang in the southern part of Laodong Peninsula. But although these stone-piled mounds were similar, there was too large a temporal and spatial gap between the two to indicate the relationship they sought. In the 80s, after bronze daggers were excavated from tombs from Qian mountain range to Jian, the theory shifted to Goguryeo sharing a culture with groups farther north on the Laoning Peninsula. The latest archaeological evidence, specifically related to uh, piled stone burials found in Jilin's Changbai County, however, returns back to a shared Buya Goguryeo heritage. Perhaps the strongest point that the South Koreans are making is not that China's Buya Goguryeo hypothesis is necessarily wrong, but that it deserves much more material research. Current archaeologists are better documenting the rich indigenous culture that thrived in each of the regions within that monolith state. Specifically, tombs in Goguryeo buried their dead above ground under mounds of rocks, whereas those in Han China were buried deep beneath the ground. I think um, one way to summarize the big sticking point between the Chinese claims and the Korean claims is to uh, take apart the relationship between Buya and the Yemek people who were who eventually formed Goguryeo. Were they part of one kind of tribe or ethnicity or weren't they? And I don't think there's, frankly, I don't think there's probably a cut and dried answer there. So in a way, somewhat, this, this argument is a bit pedantic, but anyways, definitely worth um, exploring. So on to the historical record of Goguryeo. The Samguk Sagi, which was compiled in the 12th century, um, a compilation of texts, historical texts that the, the, the Koreans kept, states that Goguryeo was founded in 37 BCE by a Buya prince, as we mentioned. Um, his posthumous name is Ding, uh, uh, King Dongmyeong, but he was known as Jumong back in the day. We could spend an episode, uh, entire episode on Buya, but suffice it to say that uh, Buya was a proto-Manchurian uh, kingdom far north of present-day Korea. It was farther north than what would become Goguryeo. The prince's name was Jumong, and after some internal strife in Buya, he moved southward and established control over the Yemek people living there at the time. In that way, his story is a little similar to Wiman, the Chinese military leader who would establish Wiman Joseon for a time, 
and somewhat reminiscent of the Scandinavian Vikings who founded uh, Kievan Rus by establishing control over the Slavs living there. This, by the way, contributes to the debate between Chinese and Koreans over the provenance of Goguryeo. The Chinese will, as expected, argue that Goguryeo is a kingdom founded by one of the ethnic tribes in their empire because of Jumong, while the Koreans argue that Goguryeo is a Korean kingdom because of the Yemek people who already had many of the characteristics of a state who fell under his rule. We should note that, in general, Kievan Rus is recognized as the proto-Russian Slavic state and Goguryeo as a proto-Korean state. However, the earliest mention of Goguryeo is in the Chinese Book of Han, which writes of Gaoguri County as a province under the rule of Xuantu Commandery since 113 BCE. You may recall this was the commandery that moved around a lot. What we know for sure is that the Yemek people who formed the bulk of Goguryeo were a powerful militaristic people from the beginning. In 75 BCE, for example, they would be recorded as incurring into the Xuantu commandery, and in 12 CE, they would revolt and break away from Xuantu, and therefore Chinese control. Historian Gina Lee Barnes categorizes Goguryeo's life cycle into four broad stages. The first stage lasts from around 75 BCE to 12 CE. The traditional founding of Goguryeo is recorded at 37 BCE, as we mentioned, but we, uh, she thinks the first stage starts at 75 BCE. That's because in that year, the Xuantu commandery was shut down. You'll know from a prior episode that Xuantu was the most remote commandery set up by the Chinese in the Korean Peninsula. And many historians credit the Yemek tribe for inciting that insurgency. So the, the local people that lived precisely where Xuantu was were the Okja. They were known to be an agricultural society and they were also known to have been really tributaries, some may say even slaves, of the Goguryeans, who apparently would kind of ride back and forth across the mountain range throughout the year to demand tribute from these poor farmers. God knows why they kept on. Well, it's probably because they weren't as good at fighting as the Goguryeans. Clearly, we know from these events that the Goguryeans were causing all types of problems for the Chinese pretty much from the get-go. Imagine, uh, you know, obviously the Chinese have had problems with quote-unquote barbarians throughout the life of China. Um, some of the most dangerous areas coming directly from the north, from the steppe nomads. But the steppe nomads occupied that huge Eurasian steppe, whereas the farming communities in China were um, much farther from their heartland. So there, there was at least somewhat of a buffer between the heart of China and these really fierce step nomads, including the Mongolians and stuff. Whereas the Golgorians or the Yemek people, as they were known before they became a state, were really much farther south. south. And so they were mountain people, um, not they were not step nomads. They had some farming culture, but because they lived in such a harsh climate or part of the country, they had to attack the agricultural people around them. So for the Chinese in particular, it was like having your enemy living right next door. Some historians see the early Goguryeon people as clients of the Chinese Han Empire who were recruited to fight against the steppe nomads. So as the Chinese do, they'll take one set of enemies and have them fight against their other set of enemies and they, you know, basically benefit from that. Other historians assign much more power to the Yemek as the agents of the downfall of an earlier Chinese colony in that area in 128 BCE. And I think the truth is probably could be both. 
they they certainly were aligned in certain they were used by the the Chinese Han as mercenaries in certain cases but as is often so often the case when you uh support a mercenary army that army can quickly turn on you and they and that's what the the Yemex did also during this period during the first stage the Go, uh, Gogoria was basically forming into a state and uh, at the time, they were known to be divided into five main clans, which I will list here just for posterity. The Sono, the Gedo, the Kwanno, the Janno, and the Sunno. What is verifiable fact is that by 12 CE, the Gogorians rebel against the Han, and in the year 32, send an embassy to the Han court on behalf of their leader, whom they addressed for the first time as king. So this is a really big deal. That was not the first time that they paid tribute to the emperor, obviously. I mean, if they were kind of the mercenary army that the Han emperor was hiring here and there to deal with other enemies, then clearly they've been um, accepted at the court um, many, many times. But this is the first time they go there and address their leader as Huang, or in Korean, uh, which is Korean for king. And that's essentially a signal to the Han, uh, Han empire saying, hey, we want to be treated like a state now. So this starts the second stage in which they have clearly established themselves as a a state around the area of the Han River and two a state that is independent of Han China. But a state does not a prosperous society make. Unfortunately, the Yemex occupied a mountainous land as we talked about, so they resorted to raiding surrounding tribes and settlements to uh to to feed themselves. By mid 1st century they may have demanded regular tributes from their peninsular neighbors in the same way that you know the Han Empire does with some of its tributaries. In 47 CE, they attack Han China again and advance deep into the mainland, even occupying Peking at one point. Again, I'm reminded of what the steppe nomads, including the Mongols, uh, did to, uh, to China as well. In 105, they attack the Chinese Xuantu commandery again. Remember, they already attacked the Shuantu commandery in 75 BCE, or they contributed to that attack, shutting it down and forcing the Chinese to relocate it from northeastern Korea to somewhere in Manchuria. Well, they find the commandery in Manchuria, and they attack it again. And then they attack the Laodong commandery in 167. However, during all this time, during these attacks, in 109, Kogryo had regularly sent tribute to Han China, showing that this was not just a warlike tribe of people, but it was a state. And it was a state that was doing not just, you know, attacking neighbors, but also conducting statecraft in the meantime. The second stage is also notable for a well-documented civil war that occurred in Goguryeo. According to the Samguksagi, in 204, King Nammu died, sparking a war of succession among his younger brothers. I have to say the language as written in the Samguk Sagi is quite colorful, and historians speculate that this particular passage originated from Korea's oral tradition, which has tended towards the body since the beginning. If I'm not mistaken, there's quite a bit of euphemistic wordplay going on. Um, I'll try not to elaborate too much on these. It's it's hard not to comment, to be honest, because it's it's so funny. But I will read you the quotes and let you draw your own conclusions for the most part. Here's the Korean version of the Civil War. When the old king died, his queen, quote, left the palace by night without issuing any proclamation of mourning and sought out Balgi, the king's younger brother, unquote. Balgi, not yet realizing that his brother has died, 
reprimands her for wandering about the night, quote, Properly chagrined, or shall we say scorned, she then sets off for the palace of the next younger brother, Yun Wu, who is much more, shall we say, accommodating. As she approaches, he robes himself, sets his cap on his head, and welcomes her into his house, seating her in the place of honor, and has meat and drink brought to her. The queen tearfully recounts what happened to her, helpfully pointing out that the deceased king has no sons, and though Balgi is the rightful next in line, recounting how he was so, quote, arrogant and cruel to her, she is now turning to him. Yanu, no slowpoke himself, quickly gets the picture and rushes to her side, and at one point takes a knife from the table to cut the meat for her himself. As he does so, he cuts his finger. So the queen, quote, loosened her waistband and bound it about his wounded finger, unquote. When she was about to return, she said to him, quote, the night is dark. I am frightened of what might happen. I wish you would accompany me to the palace, unquote. And so, quote, the next morning, unquote, and this is like, if this were a movie, this would be like a fast cut to the morning scene. Uh, they enter the palace together, and she tells a council of ministers to salute Yanu as king. This obviously didn't set well with Balgi, who quickly launches an attack on the palace with his followers. Having failed that, he flees to Laodong. So the version recorded in the Chinese record books circa the 3rd century is decidedly less colorful, a little bit more sad, kind of what you'd expect from, I don't know, a record book. It only records that Balgi was, quote, unworthy, unworthy to succeed, unquote, and was rejected by his countrymen in favor of a younger brother. It also records that Balgi would eventually defect to Gongzhen Kang, the warlord who had taken control of Laodong and Lilong commanderies at the time, which we will describe later. So, and, and I'm only including that official record just to let you know that this is a, a real story. Um, you could kind of decide which version you prefer. This takes us to the third stage of Goguryeo, which is roughly 207 to 245 CE. In 207 CE, Goguryeo moves its capital from the Han River Valley at Jolbon to the Yalu River Valley near Manwandu after retaliatory attacks from the Laodong commandery. Goguryeo has essentially been driven from a richer farming area, which wasn't that great to begin with, to one which is even tougher, which has all types of implications, and thus begins the third stage of Goguryeo. In China, the Han Dynasty finally ends its 400-year rule in 2020, splitting into the famous three kingdoms that we all know and love. In 238, Goguryeo forms an alliance with Wei, the northernmost Chinese kingdom, to overthrow the Laodong commandery, which had gone rogue for half a century under the Gongsun clan, as we just mentioned. Although this alliance was successful by knocking off the warlord, this now brought Wei to the Laoning Peninsula, and sure enough, the two allies began to bump heads, partially because the Amnok River Valley didn't have enough farmland to support the Goguryeans. In 242, they plundered the Laodong district of Xianping, or present-day Dangdong Liaoning, as they do. I mean, to be honest, this was just another Wednesday for Goguryeo. That area of farmland was essentially their tributary state, and I use that term very broadly here, more like victims. These were the poor farmers that had to kind of pay their dues to the Goguryeans every time the Goguryeans descended from the mountain and, you know, demanded food and, and stuff like that. But there's a new gangster in town. They're called the Wei Kingdom. 
and the Golgarians can't do that anymore. Um, that area is now the 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 territory of the way, which the um, perhaps unwisely the Golgarians had basically invited to the peninsula when they formed an alliance with them, and now the, the way weren't going anywhere. The way would retaliate with enormous force and would be extremely successful in driving Golgaria and its king away um, from its capital. It would, in fact, be the strongest reassertion of Chinese authority on the Korean Peninsula since the days of the first Han China conquest. By conquering Golgaria, Wei gained a lot of prestige, with envoys visiting the Wei court from as far away as Japan. We're not going to hear about this war a lot, but honestly, this is a very significant war at the time. At the time, Golgaria had become a legitimate Asian power rivaling perhaps not the Han Empire, but certainly the three kingdoms that it had fragmented into. So for Wei to be able to conquer Golgaria, which was really on the rise and you know expanding beyond their original borders, was a really big deal. Let's pause a little and talk about the social politics of that era. The Chinese history, the Sangguoji, suggests that Golgaria began to Sinicize earlier around the uh, second century, so in the last stage, but historians believe it was during the 3rd century that the social and political structure of Goguryeo really began to develop, influenced by China. The Sangguoji goes on to describe the kingdom as consisting of five tribes. Note that the term tribe is a contemporary Chinese one. Having said that, Goguryeo's structure as five distinct groups, let's say, included the royal house and the former royal house. Meanwhile, social classes were broadly separated into two, the upper order, which did not work in the fields and ate at raised seats, and the rest. There were six other ranks identified, senior, deputy senior, record keeper, clan head, and assistant. During this period, we also see a further evolution of Goguryeo's political structure, which is best stated by Gina Barnes, and I quote her. Quote, Gardner states that the Greatest change in Goguryeo structure during this time implied in the Songgoji is that of an increase in kingly power from primus inter pares, or first among equals, to a central ruler no longer relying on a hierarchy of clan nobles, but on a nexus of appointed officials subject to his word alone. Unquote. Thus, in 245, after being driven once again from their capital, this time by the Wei Kingdom, the Goguryeans were essentially driven underground to lick their wounds and regroup, thus ending the third stage of their evolution. One other important thing to note about the significance of the date one, uh, the date 245, that's essentially when Goguryeo dropped out of the official records of China. And I don't know exactly why, I can speculate, probably because of all the turmoil that China was going through in the first place, right? They went through this huge upheaval where the Han Empire was broken up. A lot of the official records of Korea at this uh, up until this point were kept by the Han Empire. And once they broke up, I'm sure there was a lot of disruption there. But it's also probably be, uh, because at this point, Goguryeo is a rival of these kingdoms. And so there's probably less... And there may have been less incentive on the part of the Chinese to, to document them properly. So we open the fourth stage with Golgaryeo having been driven from their capital. They reestablished their capital at Wandu in 245. But for the rest of the century, very little is written about them. Again, this probably is because the, the, the Chinese stopped recording them officially. Um, and it's 
you know, partially due to China itself, which was going under, you know, these dynastic changes. However, tribute missions from the southern Korean tribes of the Han, um, Buya, and Japan would make frequent journeys to the capital of China, which was Luoyang uh, Luo at the time, through the Lilong and Daifeng commanderies on the peninsula. That's incredible because, remember, it was the Gogoryeons that had driven the Chinese out of most of the commanderies. And yet, here are tributary nations from all across Asia going back to the capital of um, the Chinese kingdoms using those commanderies once again. It was al it was almost as, a, as if the Gogoryans hadn't even driven the Chinese out there in the first place. So the gap in knowledge about Gogoryeo between 245 and 313 is all the more glaring because of what actually happens in 313. In 313, Gogoryeo Gogurya attacks the Lilong commandery. Lilong is the commandery surrounding modern-day Pyongyang and um, if you listen to my past episodes on the Han commanderies, this is really kind of the the crown jewel of commanderies in Korea. It's the strongest one and the most established. And basically, that's the one that really took over Gojoseon back in the day. The Lilong commander, uh, Zheng Tong, is said to have fled northwards and established a new commandery somewhere in China. Historian Barn, uh, Barnes points out this huge hole in our understanding of Goguryeo. How could they have been so completely routed by the Wei in 245 and allow the Wei and later the Jin Empire to reestablish control over their commanderies in Korea during that time, only to reemerge with such effective force and defeat the Chinese once again? In order for the Goguryeans to have regrouped and reestablished their power so quickly, they had to have completely restructured their state. Prior to 245, they had relied on the Okja people. And again, I'm, I'm, I had mentioned this at the top of the episode, really worth mentioning these guys again. So the Okja were a tribal farming people that occupied a very narrow strip of arable land on the northeastern coast of present-day North Korea. And the reason why it's such a narrow strip is because the eastern coast of Korea is famously or infamously extremely mountain mountainous and rugged that's why most of the invasions by japan for example don't go to the east coast even though that would be you know you know as far as a crow flies it's the most direct route to korea but korea in is in essence defended very well by its you know natural topography there whereas the southern coast and particularly the western coast are much more um, gradual beaches and there's you know plenty of places where you can land ships you have what seems to be peaceful tribal farmer, you know, farmers called the Okja inhabiting this land and doing their thing and, you know, trying to raise families and farm crops and stuff like that. But they were subjugated to the Yemek and later the Gogorians, um, who actually aren't from that area at all. In fact, there's a huge mountain pass that you need to cross in order to get from the Laodong Peninsula to where the Okja were. So to me, it's still a mystery. I'm sure there's plenty of historians that talked about it. I don't see a lot of coverage in English language. If you know the relationship, shout out. I would love to know. That's what seemed to be how Gogoria initially ran its state. It was a militaristic, you know, raiding type of people, but they had farmers in both Okja and in the Laoning Peninsula in parts of present-day China um, subjugated to them. There, there seemed to be some type of relationship where they, those farming people would provide food and presumably the, the Gogodians would either 
you know, provide protection or more likely just kind of strong arm them and say, well, if you don't want to die, give us food. Um, I, I'm I'm making light a little bit. I'm sure they were trading other things like horses and stuff like that. But that's how their economy was based. And suddenly it's taken away from them. They, the way have, um, they allied with the way and now the way have really pushed themselves into the Korean Peninsula. What are they going to do now? They can't rely on these these subjugated people any longer. They probably restructured it around other parts of Korea. The most likely area is around the Lilong Commandery. Although the Chinese would retake command of that, um, the the Gogurians who had been forced southward towards there probably were still occupying some of the hinterland around there. But there's another theory that Barnes speculates around, and that has to do with the Buya people, the Buya people that we had mentioned at the top of the episode. They're the 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 state that existed above Goguryeo in Manchuria, um, who in a way had birthed uh, Goguryeo by sending one of their princes, Jumong, to, to found the state. Around 286, the Buya people were expelled from their homeland in Manchuria by the Mudong, a steppe nomad people who would later attack the Goguryeo capital in 314. The Buya would eventually resettle in Okja and other parts of the Goguryeo, um, of the past Goguryeo lands. The Buya and the Goguryeans were known to be hostile to each other, but perhaps they teamed up. We just don't know. Or I just don't know. There is still lots to learn, but generally 313 is generally taken as the final end of Chinese domination in the peninsula and the establishment of Goguryeo as suzerain. Gardner writes that the 4th century is a turning point between the ancient and medieval in Korea, and so we will use that and stop here with the history of Goguryeo, because at this point, although Goguryeo goes on to survive well past, I think, 668, um, we're entering the Three Kingdoms period, or the Korean Three Kingdoms period of history, in which events on the peninsula are no longer just um, dominated by Goguryeo, but they're actually dominated by the interaction between three powerful kingdoms, Goguryeo, Shila, and Baekje. i end this episode on something that is not history per se, but is certainly historic and certainly important part of history. In a prior episode, we described at length the founding myth of Gojo-san, which involved a bear, a tiger, some garlic, and a cave. Goguryeo's founding myth is no less fantastic. It's recorded on a 4th century stele called the Gwangeto stele, and it goes like this. Jumong was the first king of Goguryeo and descended from gods on both sides of his family. His biological father, Hemosu, or roughly translated god of the sun, was sent to earth from heaven. Hemosu, the son of the heavenly empire, descended to the seat of the capital and made it his own. Through brilliant five-color clouds, or Obangsek, he came down Wungshim Mountain in a coach pulled by five dragons amidst beautiful music, with his entourage following him on the backs of white-crested ibises. They descended to earth every day to do their business, and then ascended back to heaven every evening. So, in a way, they were commuters, kind of like living in Jersey and commuting into Manhattan. A uh, quick scientific side note. Um, I read that the people of this day in Korea thought that the distance between heaven and earth was 2,000 billion ri. So unlike a lot of ancient texts, perhaps in the West, they actually put a numerical value to this. A ri 
um, is a Korean or Korean or Chinese ancient uh, unit of measurement, which is roughly four kilometers. So I did some math, quick math, and it's basically eight trillion kilometers. Um, a light year is 9.5 trillion kilometers. So this guy, him also had to travel a light year, a little more than a light year um, in the morning and in the evening to get to work, basically. Jumong's mother, on the other hand, Yuhua, was the daughter of Habek, the god of Amnok River or the god of the sea. I'll use those two terms interchangeably. One day, Yuhua was swimming in the Amnok, Amnok River with her two sisters, as you do. Her two sisters' names were Huanhua and Weihua. Their faces were as beautiful as flowers and their jewels jingled as they played in the water. Hemosu happened to be hunting in the area at the time. Hemosu had reached old age without any heirs, so at this point he's an older king. So when he saw them, he told his aide that, hey, if he caught one of them, maybe he would finally get an heir. The three sisters were not having it, so when he when they saw him, they submerged underwater to hide from him. But with the flick of his whip, Hemosu created a splendid copper room with three seats in it right on the spot. In the room were three jars of fragrant wine. Attracted by that sweet, sweet smell, the three maidens slipped in and drank the wine and were soon drunk. The old king had literally honeypotted them. But when the old codger showed up to collect his prizes, the three tried to flee. Two of them got away, but Yunhua, the eldest, didn't. When Yunhua's father, the river god, or the sea god, was in, uh, heard the news, he was enraged. Who are you? he demanded. Him also replied that he was a son of the hem heavenly emperor and that he was going to marry his daughter. This was not a satisfactory answer. Uh, quite reasonably, the old king asked him, why didn't you ask me properly for her hand in marriage? Why did you get her drunk and entrap her in a room. Reasonable question. Um, so he demanded that Hemosu prove that he was a god. So as a test, the the river god or the sea god transformed himself into a carp. And Hemosu turned himself in, into an otter and got a hold of the carp. The sea god then transformed into a deer and started, you know, uh, sprinting across the land Hemosu turned himself into a jackal and overcame him and again. And lastly, the sea god transformed into a pheasant flying high into the sky, only to have Hemosu turn into a hawk, overcoming him again. Bested, the sea god begrudgingly held a feast for the couple. But upon getting Hemosu drunk, he locked up the couple in a leather-covered dragon coach and sent them off towards heaven. But Hemosu roused himself in time and escaped not before pulling a golden pin from Yuha's hair. Yuha returned to her father alone in the coach. Angered, he cast her down to earth for good to another river. One day, the fishermen in that river informed the king of Buya, King Gumha, that they had spotted a mysterious being in the water and that many of their fish were stolen. Using an iron net, they pulled up Yuha. She levitated out of the water, sitting on a stone. Recognizing her as the eldest daughter of the sea, uh, sea god, the king set up her. Sing, the king set her up in his villa. There, once the sunlight poured its warm rays on her body, she conceived, and gave birth to a large egg. The king did all he could to actually destroy the egg. He left it in the forest, 
but all the animals in the in the forest actually protected the egg. So he took back the egg, put it into his palace, and in time, Jumong was born from that egg. He learned to speak at one month and told his mother he couldn't sleep because of some annoying flies and asked her to make him a bow and arrow so that he could shoot them. She obliged, and sure enough, he shot each fly dead. And with that skill, he earned his name Jumong, which means outstanding archer in the Buya language. Jumong's stepdad, King Gumha, was no mortal either. The Samguk Sagi states that the prior king of Buya, He Buru, which means sun and light, did not have any children well into old age. Quote from a great Tumblr page I found about this incident. Quote, when his horse arrived in a place named Gonyan, the horse started to shed tears after seeing a large rock there. The king, Heb Buru, wondered why and asked a person to move the rock. He found a golden frog-like child there. The king was pleased and, believing that heaven had given him a wise heir, immediately took him in and raised him. He named the child Gumhua. So there you have it, the founding myth of Goguryeo. And we'll end the episode with that. Until next time, take care.